0: Thanks, Dave. Good morning. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Welcome to the Parkway Church. If you have a Bible, if you want to open it to Romans 6, we'll be in verses 12 through 14 this morning. And uh, as you're doing that, I want to tell you about some of my most treasured possessions when I was a kid. And so there were a few things that I had when I was a kid that I just really, really Loved and, uh, and so my bike was one of those things. I think uh, every kid who has a bike just loves their bike. Uh, another thing that I really uh, appreciated was I loved my tennis rackets. So I had a lot of friends. So I grew up playing tennis. Uh, had a lot of people that I would play doubles with, and they would break a racket. And I always thought, why would you do that? Why would you break your racket? Uh, a, I don't have that kind of money, and B, I kind of like my racket. And, uh, and so tennis racket, my bunk bed, I really loved that I had a bunk bed uh, growing up. I took the bottom bunk up, uh, out and then I just slept on the top and I put a little love seat under my bunk bed, which was kind of cool, so I had a little couch in my room. And, and then the other thing that I really loved was a, a BB gun. And so I had this Daisy 880 uh, multi-pump pneumatic rifle, and, uh, and I loved it. Uh, I would uh, go out and, uh, and just spend all day in the woods. The, uh, the magazine held about 50 BBs. Uh, three or four pumps was good for target practice. You pump that thing up six or seven times, you could kill a bird. And, uh, and then if you go up to, to 10 times, it uh, shot a BB at like 750 feet per second, which is about two-thirds the speed of like a nine millimeter. And so to give you some idea there, it was a pretty powerful uh, rifle. And sometimes I would use it for really righteous reasons. Uh, like there was a time that uh, our neighbor's dog got out and uh, got into our backyard whenever uh, our dog was back there. My neighbor's dog uh, was a chow, and, uh, and we had a, uh, a boxer. And so this dog came and attacked uh, my dog. I happened to have the BB gun, so I pumped that thing up, and I shot him in the, shall I say, the hiney. And, uh, and so uh, that dog stopped attacking my dog after that. Uh, or uh, my brother tells a story uh, about a time that he was home alone and he thought he heard something. And, uh, and so he went searching the house with this, uh, with this BB gun rifle. And, uh, and so he's going and he's searched every room in the house. Uh, and the, last, the very last place he had to look was in my parents' uh, uh, bathroom. And so he goes into the bathroom and he checks the, my mom's closet, and then he gets to my dad's closet. And that's like the last place uh, that he has. So he's just certain because he, you know, obviously he couldn't uh, say it's nothing. So he's just certain there's something in this closet. So he goes and he puts his hand uh, on the handle and he swings the door open and something lurches out uh, at him and that's how my dad's rope got a hole in it. Uh, and so, uh, so sometimes we use this BB gun for uh, righteous reasons. Sometimes we used it for unrighteous reasons. One time uh, I was out in, uh, in the woods behind the house and, uh, and I saw a rabbit and I shot it. And it made like the worst scream that you can imagine and jump up in the air like three feet and then just fell over dead. Uh, I shot it in the eyeball, and I literally almost started to cry. It just made me so sad. My mother-in-law is going to hear this sermon. She's going to be angry with me because bunnies are her favorite uh, uh, thing. So hear me say that's not a righteous use of the gun just to kill things just for no reason. Uh, I laughed maniacally every time I'd kill a snake, though. I just, I loved killing snakes, uh, but killing rabbits wasn't my thing. I killed a, a deer one time, not with the the BB gun, but I almost cried then as well. But that's another story. Anyway, so sometimes we use it for righteous reasons. Sometimes I'd use it for unrighteous reasons. Most of the time, we just use it for highly irresponsible reasons. And, uh, and so uh, my uh, brother, myself, and some of our neighbors uh, really loved to play laser tag. But instead of lasers, we used BB guns. And, uh, and so we, here we were just running around, uh, you know, 13-year-old, 14-year-old kids with these high-powered uh, pneumatic rifles. No eye protection, uh, no helmets, uh, nothing like that. We're in shorts and t-shirts, just shooting each other uh, with these rifles because we're morons. And uh, and so uh, this is what we're doing. One time after we play, the kid who lived across the street, just for no reason whatsoever, the game's over, and he comes and he puts the rifle uh, six inches away from my leg and just pulls the trigger, and it literally sticks in my leg. The BB just sticks there halfway into my leg. So I look at him, and he looks at me, and apparently some look came over my face that told him he needed to run, and so he did, and I started pumping, and I shot him in the shall I say, hiney, and uh, he was a big boy, but boy, that kid jumped really, really high. And so anyway, this was the use of uh, of BB guns uh, for me. Well, what does this have to do with our passage? Well, our passage this morning concerns the use of weapons. And just like a BB gun, uh, the the Bible is going to talk about the the fact that we can use these weapons for righteousness or unrighteousness. Now, in the context of this passage, when it's talking about weapons, it's not talking about guns. It's not talking about swords. It's not talking about bow staffs or nunchucks or anything like that. It's instead talking about the weapons that are uh, what are called the members of our body, the parts of our body. And the way that we steward our body can be either for God, for the purpose of righteousness, or for sin, for the purpose of unrighteousness. So let's pray, and then we will uh, dive into the passage uh, together. Just ask first that you would pray for yourself, that the Lord would give you a a mind that is uh, attentive and a heart that is undivided. Would you pray that also for those who are around you, friends, family, strangers, whatever it might be, that the Lord also would meet with them and remove from them any distraction or division or discouragement or whatever it might be and speak to them through His Word. And then lastly, would you pray for me? I've had a cold the past couple of days. Not only physically, but spiritually as well, that I'd be tethered to the Word. So Father, we thank You for your word this morning, we pray that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in your word, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name, that you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. We ask these things because you are good and you do good. So we pray in Christ's name, amen. Let's look at Romans six twelve. verse 12 is where we'll begin, which says, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Last week, if you were here, Zach uh, preached, and one of the things that he talked about is he mentioned this difference between indicatives and imperatives, and these are moods in uh, in Greek verbs. Now, don't think moods like happy or uh, sleepy or doc or whatever it might be. Don't think of those sorts of uh, moods. Whenever we talk about moods, what we're talking about is kind of the nature of the verb. What is it that the verb is intending to do? Is the verb uh, intending to ask a question? That's an uh, interrogative. Is the verb intended to give a statement? That's an indicative. Is the verb intended to express a command? Uh, That's an imperative. And so what we want to do a little bit this morning is I want to give you a bit of a a grammar lesson. I'm sure that's what uh, all of you woke up this morning and thought, I want to learn about English. I speak English good. And uh, and so we're going to do a little bit of grammar because this is really important. We need to do this. This is not just some uh, sort of peripheral thing or tertiary thing. This is something that is absolutely essential to our understanding of this passage uh, in particular and to our understanding of just sanctification and godliness in general. As we read the Scripture, we need to be able to understand the difference between an indicative and an imperative. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. The difference between an indicative and imperative, uh, I kind of have an illustration of that. It's kind of like the difference between uh, you run out of gas and then you get behind your vehicle and you push it versus you run out of gas and you put gas in the tank. If all that you do, if all that you have, if your only fuel uh, for obedience, if your only fuel for sanctification is just imperative, 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 it's just like pushing that vehicle. The indicatives are, the, are, are what fuels us, what empower us for the sake of obedience. And so here we go, indicatives versus imperative. Well, indicatives simply indicate something. That's why they're called an indicative. They simply indicate something. They are simple statements of fact or reality. I am Jeff would be an indicative. I like pizza would be an indicative. That's a BB gun would be an indicative. Imperatives, on the other hand, are commands or prohibitions, all right? So call me Jeff would be an imperative. Give me pizza would be an imperative. Don't shoot me with the BB gun would be... Uh, an imperative. That's the difference there. What's really interesting is up to this point in Romans, we haven't encountered imperatives at all. We've encountered hundreds upon hundreds of indicative statements of fact, but we haven't Encountered commands. Up until actually the last verse of the passage that Zach preached last week, which says that we are to consider or reckon or count ourselves dead to sin, up until that point, we have not encountered any imperatives in the book of Romans. We've seen the indicatives like God's righteousness is being revealed. That's an indicative. That mankind is unrighteous. That's an indicative that all have sinned and fall short, that all are in sin, that you have been justified, that you have died to sin, that you have been set free. You've seen all of these indicatives. But here, beginning with our passage last week and then moving into the passage this week, we see this cluster of imperatives. But what's really interesting is after we fade out of this passage, you don't see these again in the book of Romans until chapter 12. You don't see imperatives again until chapter 12. There's no commands uh, that are given. He goes back to just indicative upon indicative upon indicative. Not what you are to do, but what God has done for us in Christ. That's the foundation. That's the fuel that is going to empower our obedience. So why is it that it's important that you recognize the difference between an imperative and an indicative? Because sanctification, godliness, holiness, these things are going to come as we connect the imperatives of Scripture to the indicatives of Scripture. And as we realize that the indicatives are what fuel the imperative for us, they empower our obedience. So we can't uh, confuse or divide the indicatives and the imperatives. Here's what I mean. Let me give you an example. So my daughter, Larkin, right now is two. And I have to give her a lot of commands, all right? So anyone who's a parent knows that uh, imperatives are a very important part of parenting, right? A lot of what you do as a parent is just simply telling your kids what to do and not to do. And so one of the big things that I have to tell Larkin right now in this season is don't spit that out. That's like the major command that is in my house right now because she is taken to chewing on food. And by chewing, I mean basically just storing it in a pouch Uh, in her cheek, like a little chipmunk. And she will just hold it in there uh, indefinitely, like she's hiding it for hibernation or something like that. Uh, And then later on, 15, 20, 30 minutes later, she'll go to another room in the house and she'll just spit it out. That's where she deposits it. And then, you know, she's coming back apparently at some point to uh, to retrieve it uh, for fuel or sustenance or something like that. But anyway, so I have to tell her, chew it up. And then she'll go... And that's all she does. I don't know, you couldn't even see me in the back probably, but I'm not really chewing and uh, she doesn't really chew and then I'll say swallow it and she won't swallow it. She just will hold it there uh, indefinitely in her mouth. So I have to tell her, don't spit that out, chew that, swallow it. A lot of my time as a dad is spent giving her these various commands. Don't eat that, do eat this, get down, come here, uh, whatever it, uh, it might be. And, uh, and so at the same time though, I think, about the fact that I don't want her to just hear imperatives from me all the time. I don't want her conception, as she's thinking of me 20 years, 30 years, 50 years later, I don't want her primary conception of who I am to just be a lawgiver. My daddy was just this guy who just gave me commands all day long. He told me the things that I could do. He told me the things uh, that I couldn't do. And so what am I doing throughout the day? I'm filling her mind with indicatives. Daddy loves you. Jesus loves you. You're beautiful. Your mommy loves you. These sorts of things. Those vegetables are good for you. Those are indicatives. I'm trying to fill her mind with all of these sorts of uh, of indicatives. Why Why is it that I'm doing that? It's because I hope that one day there will be this collision in her mind where she will understand the relationship that exists between the indicative and the imperative. She'll understand the reason that I tell her to not eat that battery is not because I don't love her, but it's because I do love her. The indicative of my love is going to lead her to the imperative of why I don't want her to stick a fork in that outlet or whatever it might be that she is doing. My hope is that one day she'll make that connective uh, connection between the indicative and, uh, and the imperative. That's how it is with the imperatives of Scripture. As we get to these commands, as we get to the prohibitions that this passage is going to give, we need to understand all of these are built upon the foundation of hundreds upon hundreds of indicatives that have already gone before. As we've seen God's love, as we've seen God's grace, as we've seen God's mercy, as we've seen the fact that we have already been justified, that Christ has died for us. And as a result of that, we have died to sin So these commands, these commands of chapter 6, they're only going to come as they're being built upon the foundation of chapters 1 through 5 and all of the different truths uh, that he has uh, expressed. So with that in mind, let's look at this uh, command here. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Now notice the kingdom language here. He talks about reigning here. If you were to skip ahead to verse 14 in your Bible and look at that, it talks about uh, the, the concept of dominion. You have this kingdom language that Paul's picking up from uh, chapter 5, verse 21, which says, So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin always desires dominion. It's never satisfied, it's never satiated, it never grows complacent, it's never content, it will never be your servant. Sin refuses to serve you. Instead, sin demands your service and submission. Sin demands your allegiance. To obey is to submit. To obey is to acquiesce, to kneel to sin's reign and rule. And it says here that uh, the way in which it's going to reign is when you obey passions. To make you obey passions. Now, you might think that when it's talking about passions there, and it has the little uh, pronoun there, it's, to make you obey its passions, you might think it's talking about sin's passions. But what's really interesting there is that's not grammatically what it refers to in the Greek. It's not uh, to make you obey sin's passions. It's, it's uh, related to the word uh, "their body. To make you uh, obey your body's passions. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey said bodies, passions. And this word passions here, now throughout Greek, it refers to any sort of strong or great desire. A strong or great uh, desire. Sometimes it's used positively, as, uh, as when Paul would write, he would say that my desire or my passion Same word in the Greek, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. So sometimes there's a a positive connotation to passion, but oftentimes this word has a negative nuance in the New Testament. Not just a desire, but a controlling desire. Not just a passion, but a lustful passion. An inordinate desire directed toward an improper end. An inordinate desire directed toward an improper end. So, in other words, you have these natural passions. You have these desires and sin desires to capture it. Sin desires to capture it and to corrupt it. So does that mean, is is what Paul's saying here, does that mean that we should be ascetics? Does that mean that we should kind of deny all passion, all pleasures? Well, not at all. That's not Paul's point at all. Paul's point is not that all desire or passion is bad. Instead, what sin is, is fulfilling a God-given desire in a God-forgiven way. That's how some people have defined sin in the past. Sin is fulfilling a God-given desire. The desire in and of itself can be good or bad in a God-forbidden way. That's what sin is. It's not that passions necessarily are bad, but passions are bad when they are used, when they are corrupted, when they are uh, given toward uh, sin. So let me give you an illustration of this. It's good and right for me to desire to please Casey. That's my wife. It's good and right for me to desire to please her, to take her on dates, to buy her flowers, to write a little uh, note for her, to tell her that I love her. It's not good and right for me to express those things to someone who's not my wife. Likewise, there are good and right desires that we might have, but when they're channeled in a certain direction, toward a certain end, uh, they uh, become sinful Desires, For example, the desire for food or drink is good. The Bible says whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There is a way to eat a nice steak. There is a way to drink orange juice or coffee or whatever it might be. To the glory of God, the desire for food and drink, it's not a bad thing. It's actually a God-given good thing, a source of joy for us. But when sin captures it, when sin corrupts that desire, all of a sudden now it's channeled. Uh, toward gluttony or anorexia or whatever uh, it might uh, be. The desire for sex is a good and right desire or passion if directed toward your spouse. But if sin captures it, if sin corrupts it and channels it towards pornography or premarital sex or adultery or something like that, the desire for sleep is a good and right uh, desire and passion God commands rest. That's what we talked about a little bit before, why we have a, uh, a yearly sabbatical during July and uh, December. But if sin captures it and corrupts it, then the good desire for sleep or the good desire for rest is channeled towards sloth and indolence and laziness and those kinds of things and so forth. You could go on and on with every single desire and passion that you might experience. So Paul is saying here, you've been set free. From sin no longer therefore allow it to rule and reign and the way in which you do not allow it to rule and reign is to no longer obey these inordinate or illicit or improper desires but the problem for you and me Even if we've been set free from sin, which is the context here that Paul is talking about. Paul's talking about those who have explicitly been united to Christ, those who have died to sin, those who have exercised faith, those who have been justified. Even though we have experienced all of these things, the problem is you and I have a bit of Stockholm Syndrome. You familiar with this phenomenon? It's whenever someone is uh, uh, held captive by a uh, uh, a certain uh, person or persons, and over time, they begin to develop a sympathy or a sense of compassion or even a sense of love toward their kidnapper or their captor. That's kind of what happens with us when it comes to sin. We're enslaved to it, but then we're set free from sin, but there's still a sense in which we long for it. There's still a sense in which we yearn for it. There's still a sense in which it still feels comfortable for us because we've began to love it. And so what Paul is doing here is he's trying to reorient our affections to displace our desire for this deceptive captivity that we've experienced. And what he's doing is he's raising our affections for our deliverer. And the way he does so is by rehearsing the facts of our redemption over and over and over. That's what we've seen Uh, throughout Romans 6 and what we'll continue to see in Romans 7. So let's keep going in verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So now we get to the second and the third imperatives of this passage. One prohibition and one command. Don't present your members to sin. That's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is, but do instead present yourselves to God. Here's the the fundamental idea of this passage to whom or what will you present yourself? To whom or what will you present yourself? To sin or to God? And the point that he's making here is if you've been delivered from, from one realm to another, that is, from the realm of death, to the realm of life. If you've been delivered from one realm to another, then you've been delivered from one objective or one goal to another, from unrighteousness to righteousness. And likewise, you've been delivered from one ruler to another, from sin to God. With a new realm comes a new ruler and a new objective, and so we now present ourselves to that ruler and that objective rather than the previous ruler and objective or mission or goal. And this word here, present, that he uses here, he says, do not present, but instead present. This word present will come up a few times in this chapter, so we'll see it uh, next week as well. Verse 16, "Do do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Or verse 19, for just as you once presented your members as slave to impurity, and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. This word present here means to put at the disposal of. It's used in the context of slave owners. Uh, A a slave was to present themselves to their slave owner. Or of kings, uh, the servant of the king, the vassal, was to present themselves to their sovereign or of military leaders, the, uh, the privates or uh, the, the sergeants or whatever were to present themselves to the, uh, the colonels and, uh, and uh, the generals and those uh, sorts of things. And so the idea here is take this sword. Take this sword which you once used to serve King Saul, this sword which you once used to oppress David, and now use it to serve King David. You have a new king, and so now use these weapons to serve that new king. Take your tongue, Paul, which was once you used to persecute and tear down the church and use it now to build up the church. Take these hands, Israel, which you once used to serve Pharaoh and use them to serve the Lord your God. You're no longer in Egypt, so act like it. That was our text last week. Become what you're already declared to be. That's the idea here, continuing on into this week from last week's text. Learn to become what you already are. You've already been declared to be all of these things. So therefore, now learn to actually be them in reality. Present your members, present your constituent parts, indeed your entire self. Present yourself to God rather than sin as instruments for righteousness rather than unrighteousness. I think it's interesting that they, they translate the word instruments here as instruments uh, whereas in uh, most of Pauline literature, they uh, actually translate it as weapons. 2 Corinthians 6-7, the same Greek word, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Or 2 Corinthians ten four, for the weapons, same word in the Greek, of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So you could translate this instead of uh, instruments for righteousness as Weapons. For righteousness or weapons for unrighteousness. In other words, as with a BB gun, so the members of our body can be used for righteous or unrighteous reasons, and which we choose is of utmost importance to us. This passage is littered with military imagery. Not only the word present and the word weapons or instruments that has a military sort of connotation, but also the idea of reigning and ruling and dominion and all of these sorts of things. The passage is littered with military uh, imagery. The rule and reign of a usurper, the presenting of weapons, the fight for dominion. In other words, this means war. This passage is about warfare. Anything goes in war. War. That's a lesson that you should learn, that anything goes... When you're a kid and you get into a fight, nobody expects the person that you're fighting to go and to grab a big stone or to grab a log and begin to pummel you with it. There are certain rules uh, in elementary school fights that everybody just kind of knows there are certain limits. There are certain boundaries. That isn't the case when it comes to war. Think of the example, uh, one of my favorite stories from the Old Testament. Uh, Samson is fleeing from the Philistines, and, uh, and he sees this donkey's jawbone, and he reaches down, and he grabs it, and he gets up, and he slays hundreds upon hundreds of Philistines with the donkey's jawbone. That's kind of the, the imagery that's used here. Anything is a war, your hands, your fingers, your toes, all of these sorts of things uh, are to be used in this battle. Like Jason Bourne, if you've seen any of these movies, he just picks up a pen or he picks up a book or he picks up a hand towel and he uses that in order to uh, kill the government assassin that's been sent to kill him. One of my favorite characters in, uh, in all of TV of all time is a guy named Ron Swanson. And in one episode, one episode, he is sitting at his desk, and he's cleaning a crossbow. He's a government employee, and he's just sitting there cleaning his crossbow. And so uh, his boss, Ben, uh, comes by and says, I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to have a, uh, a weapon at work. And Ron's response is, son, in my hands, anything is a weapon. <laughs> he said, uh, that folder that you're carrying uh, is more deadly in my hands than the crossbow would be in, uh, in yours. That's kind of the imagery uh, of this uh, passage here. There's no neutrality, there's no truce, there's no treason when it comes to sin, so don't serve it. Rather serve God with every appendage, every member, every cell in your body. And this warfare imagery here is essential for you to grasp because without it, you begin to grow lax. Imagine, if you will, you're playing laser tag and you have an opportunity to storm the other team's base. What's the worst that's going to happen to you? You get shot? And you're out for a game. Maybe if you're my age, you pull a hammy or something like that. That's the worst that's going to happen to you. Now, contrast that image, storming the other team's base and laser tag, with storming the beaches of Normandy. Those are fundamentally different things. There's a level of awareness. There's a level of seriousness that must be present in one that doesn't have to be present in the other. That's the imagery here of warfare, There can be no reckless abandon when it comes to sin. Imagine the difference between holding this super soaker water gun versus holding a high-powered rifle. With one, you're careful because you hold the power of life and death. With the other, you just hold the power of soaking people with water. So you don't care. You point it at people. You point it at people's eyes. You don't care what you're doing. It's just a water gun. Well, the members of your body are not water guns. They're high-powered rifles or pistols or samurai swords. So treat them accordingly. There should be no laxness, no casualness, no laissez-faire sort of attitude when it comes to sin. There should be no indifference. As John Owen once famously wrote, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. This is life or death. This is warfare. If you don't feel the weight of this call to sanctification, then you don't understand sin, or salvation, or the gospel. You're running around on the beaches of Normandy with your little laser tag gun, oblivious to the bombs and the mortar shells going on, exploding all around you. So how do you do this practically? It says, present your members to God. Don't present your members to sin. How do you do this practically? How do you present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. We'll give two thoughts from the remaining passage, one from this passage, uh, from this uh, particular verse, and then the, uh, the next from the next verse. The first thing you have to do is practice. Zach talked about this last week, just the importance of practicing virtue. You ever hear a drill sergeant yell out, present arms? That's kind of the idea here. Present your members, present arms. Now, does that process, does the process of a drill sergeant yelling out, present arms, and then all of a sudden every soldier snaps into attention instinctively, is that, actual, is that actually instinctive? No, it's not something that is just learned organically or by osmosis or something. It's learned by practicing over and over and over and over and over again. It's learned through push-ups, it's learned through practice, it's learned through consequences, it's learned through boot camp, it's learned through all of these sorts of things. But over time, it then becomes natural. It becomes second nature. Well, virtue and sanctification can be like that. Again, we talked about that a little bit last week, that sanctification is learning to be what you already are declared to be. Zach used the imagery of a new dad Before the baby comes, if you're super ambitious, you might take a class or two at the hospital. You might read a book or two or something like that. But then he or she comes, and you're all of a sudden on this steep learning curve. No one's ready to be a dad or a mom whenever the baby's actually born. But the moment the baby arrives, you are a dad or a mom. In that moment, whether you're ready or not, the baby is here, and you are now declared to be a dad or a mom. And now you become uh, you, now, you enter into this cycle of actually learning to become uh, practically what you are already declared to be realistically. That's the same sort of idea here. Each day, you practice becoming what you already are. When that attractive person walks by you, there's a sense in which we just practice turning our heads. There's a sense in which when we're tempted to skip the reading, uh, reading our Bibles or praying or whatever, we need to practice just getting up and doing it. Discipline without delight isn't ideal. That's not ultimately where we want to be, but sometimes it's necessary to carry us through a season of drought. And as delight can lead to discipline, even so discipline can lead to delight over time. Now, maybe this whole idea, maybe, maybe the idea as we're talking about practicing sanctification or disciplining yourself for holiness sounds weird to you. There's an entire strain of, uh, of Christianity that uh, really kind of stresses the idea that uh, there should be no, no discipline. There should be only delight or whatever it might be. But this is a profoundly biblical idea. I won't have you turn there, but in 1 Timothy 4, Paul writes that we are to train ourselves godliness, Train ourselves for godliness. The word there, train, in, uh, in Greek is gymnazo. It's the, uh, where we actually get the word gymnasium from. So train yourself, discipline yourself for the sake of righteousness. As an athlete, trains his body for sport, so the Christian is to train himself for sanctification. So it takes practice to take these members which are acquainted with, for unrighteousness, acquainted with unrighteousness, and now begin to train them for the use of uh, righteousness. I have a buddy who's a member here. He's not here today. He's actually preaching at a church in Colorado, so he'll listen to the uh, podcast and realize that I'm about to make fun of him. Uh, But uh, the other day, he was sitting on the couch, and uh, he reached for his remote, and he tore his knee. Just (laughs) reaching for his remote. His body was not used to something so intense and aggressive (laughs) as moving, I guess, is basically uh, the idea there. But likewise, our spiritual muscles can begin to atrophy over time. We're used to using them in a certain way. We're used to using them for the sake of sin, for the sake of unrighteousness. And so Paul says we have to now begin to use them as instruments for righteousness, and that takes practice. That takes training. That takes discipline. That's the first thing that we are to do But how or what are we to practice? We get a little taste of that in the next verse. Let's look at verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So we see here a second way in which we are to present our members to God as instruments for righteousness. The first way is practicing. The second way here is preaching. Now It it, it is a fundamental fact that no one talks to you more than you do. That's true even for me, and I work with Zach and Tim who literally never stop talking. No one stops, no one talks to you more than you do. All day long, you're speaking to yourself, whether you know it or not. You're telling yourselves things, things to love, things to believe, things to do. All day long, you are speaking to yourselves. So part of what we have to practice is preaching truth to ourselves. When there are lies, when there is deception, when there is a passion that arises that can go towards sin or to God, there's a sense in which we are to now practice preaching truth to ourselves. And this is a profoundly biblical sort of idea. One of my favorite passages on this is Psalm 42. The context here is the psalmist is feeling overwhelming despair. He's feeling overwhelming despair. And in the context in which he is feeling overwhelming despair, he writes this in verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. What's he doing? He's preaching to himself. He literally says, O my soul. He's preaching to himself. He's preaching hope as the antidote to the poison of despair. He's talking to himself, not some sort of crazy schizophrenic sort of thing, not because he's crazy, but because he's wise, because he's godly, because he knows the importance of preaching truth to yourself. Or Psalm 103, we read this at our night of worship and sang a song uh, that just kind of goes through the uh, the words of this psalm, which is a beautiful a recollection of God's grace and mercy, but it begins with, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. That's the imperative. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. That's the indicative. The command is to bless the Lord, but the kindling, the fuel for that command, consists of a thousand blessings. When you remember all his benefits, you will bless. And so uh, he rehearses these benefits. He remembers his redemption and he preaches it to himself over and over and over again. That's the idea here. There's an old television skit called Daily Affirmations with a character named Stuart Smalley. Some of you may remember it. Daily Affirmations with uh, Stuart Smalley. And at the end of it, at the end of every single episode, this guy would stare into a mirror and he would say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. That's what he would say. And as silly as that sounds, it's kind of like cultish, sort of self-help, esteemy that sounds. It's actually not all that silly. After all, there's a sense in which each day we should wake, wake up. And each day we should preach to ourselves, not as we look in a mirror, but instead as we look in God's Word. Not humanistic sort of mantras like, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. But instead, other truths. Not mere prohibitions. You remember the Just Say No to Drugs campaign? Do you remember this? Basically, that was the sort of idea. Just say no to drugs. We would have some actor that's frying an egg or something like that, and he would say, this is your brain on drugs. It's definitely this powerful image. It stuck with me 30-something years after they ran uh, this c- campaign. And, uh, and that certainly can be helpful. Kind of rehearsing, talking about the consequences of sin can be a really helpful thing. This is your brain on drugs sort of imagery. This is what uh, life is like in sin sort of uh, idea. The Bible does that quite a bit. Uh, that should be a tool, belt, a tool in our tool belt of sanctification that we would rehearse the consequences of sin, but ultimately, ideally, we need something more than just prohibition, and we need more than just simply preaching the consequences of sin to ourselves. We need more than just a just-say-no attitude when it comes to sin. We need something stronger than prohibitions. We need promises. That's ultimately what we are to preach to ourselves, to preach the promises of God. Promises like here in 6.14, like sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. That's a promise. Some of you feel like sin has dominion in your life. Whatever that sin is, whether it's pornography or vanity or greed or laziness, whatever it might be, you might feel like sin has the upper hand there. Or you you might feel like you're enslaved to it. You need to recognize this is not a command This here is a promise. Your feelings are false, so preach that promise to yourself. Promises like God is loving, God is good. Christ has died for sin. I'm united to Him, and therefore I've died to sin. Promises like I'm forgiven, I'm accepted, I'm justified, I'm a new creation. Promises like the fact that God is passionate about your joy. He's not a cosmic killjoy. He's the very creator of passion and pleasure. So any command, any prohibition that He gives is to lead us to deeper rivers and oceans of delight. So we are to practice preaching the promises of God to ourselves over and over and over again. And over time, we begin to believe them, and they become second nature, just like practicing anything else. What's really interesting about this passage is that even as we have moved in chapter 6 from the indicatives of Scripture to the imperatives of Scripture, here we move back to the indicatives. It's kind of like this uh, little uh, sanctification sandwich, uh, if you will. One of our uh, elders here, his favorite meal is grilled cheese sandwich. And so he talks about how he used to have the, this uh, business account. He would go out on these uh, you know, business meetings at a nice restaurant and he'd order grilled cheese. That's what he really loved. And, uh, and he's secure enough in his maturity to admit that. Uh, most of us probably wouldn't admit that our favorite uh, meal is a grilled cheese sandwich. But anyway, what is a grilled cheese sandwich apart from the bread? It's just a slice of processed cheese. That's all it is. Likewise, what are all of these commands in Scripture without the indicatives? They're just these sort of cheesy commands that are given to us. As, uh, as the bread is going to make the sandwich, so these indicatives, so these promises of God are what actually empower us for sanctification. So if you're united to Christ, then sin will have no dominion uh, over you. You're not under law, but under grace. Sin no longer has lordship over you. Grace is your master. And unlike your previous master, it's good and beautiful and lovely and blessed. And these truths, these promises are what begin to empower our obedience as we practice preaching them to ourselves. I want to wrap up with a little bit of an illustration from uh, based on a, a little phrase in Genesis chapter four. In Genesis chapter four, there's a little phrase. God is speaking there to Cain, uh, and he uses this uh, this phrase. He says that sin is crouching at your door. Sin is crouching at the door, and that imagery has always struck me because it really personifies well sin. Sin is this sort of active thing. It's not this impersonal sort of force. It's almost uh, personified as if it's a person crouching. At your door it has these sort of characteristics of, uh, of being actually like, like a human, like a, uh, like a person, not just some sort of a, a, a force. And it really kind of uh, kind of connotes that sort of imagery, that the desire for sin is to capture, to kidnap, to kill, all of these sorts of. It has this lustful violence to it. So sin is crouching at your door. So based on that passage, I want you to, to do something. I want you to imagine for a second that you're at home, and imagine some of your loved ones are there with you, your spouse, your kids, whatever it might be, just one or two or three other people are there with you in your home. And all of a sudden, someone is attempting to kick in that door. Someone is attempting to kick in that door, and you kind of gaze out a side window to see what's going on as you call the police, and you notice this person has a weapon, and you realize, I don't have time to wait for the police. Now, next to your bed... You have two different weapons there. You have the BB gun. I don't know why you have it next to your bed, but you do. You have a BB gun, and then you have this 12 gauge shotgun. Which do you grab in that moment? Which is gonna be the most effective in actually deterring that threat? Well, I would argue that mere commands, mere prohibitions, do this, don't do that, all that is, that's just a BB gun. All it's going to do is just actually exacerbate or aggravate the threat or the temptation or the sin. But instead, you grab the shotgun. That's going to actually deter, and the shotgun in this analogy are the promises of God. That's what we reach for as sin crouches at the door. So if you struggle with anxiety, go to war with your anxiety. Don't be lax, don't be casual, don't be laissez-faire about your anxiety. Go to war with your anxiety by practicing preaching the promises of God. What promises in particular? Promises about the sovereignty of God, the love of God. The walls of anxiety begin to crumble as you confess that you're loved, that God is good, that all that He does is good, that He controls all things. What foothold does the sin of anxiety have as your heart begins to embrace those sorts of promises? If you struggle with pride, fight it with the promises of God. Promises like God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Or blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If you struggle with lust, fight it with the promises of God, that you are not with your own, you were bought with a price. Or blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Or because Christ has suffered when he was tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted or uh, the promise that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man and that God always provides a means of escape and on and on and on we could go in other words don't try to fan uh, don't try to fight the flames of sin and temptation in your life with a mere water gun of prohibition or command instead fight it with the oceans and rivers of God's grace and mercy with the promises of the gospel. Let's pray. As the men come forward, Father, we pray. We thank you for this word. We thank you for the fact that we are no longer under sin, but we are under grace. And I pray that you would help us, help us, Lord, to no longer present the members of our body as instruments unrighteousness, but instead we might present ourselves fully as instruments for the sake of righteousness, that we would recognize the seriousness of sin, the seriousness of this warfare imagery, and that we might have that sort of warfare mentality uh, in our lives as we think about sin and grace and mercy and all of these things, that we might be a people who hate our sin and love you, a people who delight in your promises and therefore present ourselves to you for your glory, and our joy. I pray these things with hope and expectation because You're a good Father who gives good gifts to Your children. So we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.